0: Lord God, uh, give us what we need uh, this evening, we pray, so that we may face the call of Jesus to come follow me, and may be willing to leave all else to do so. Amen. Well, imagine, uh, if you will, that um, you've been at uh, Carrow Road. I believe there are supporters of other teams around, but uh, we won't Go with there. Um, You've come out of a a match uh, at Carrow Road and uh, uh, your team has won. Let's pretend it's Norwich. Um, uh, Or imagine uh, that you've been to some great cultural event, if that's what you're um, into, and you come out onto the forecourt. And uh, whatever the scenario, there's lots of people all moving in one direction. And as you leave, Uh, you see the crowd sort of dividing either side of this uh, brown cap uh, at some distance from you. And you get closer, and you realize this is a person wearing a brown cap and holding up a finger. And uh, as you get closer still, and all the crowds are still kind of going either side, you hear his voice saying, repent. Personally, whenever I hear that word, I always imagine it... um, in the tones of Private Fraser from Dad's army, uh, saying that we're doomed. So you hear the voice saying, repent. And then as you get closer still, uh, following the crowd that's dividing around, you see that he's wearing one of those old sandwich board things. Uh, And on it it says, good news, And you understand at that point why everyone's dividing and going around him and paying him absolutely no attention. Because there's some mismatch between the voice that is saying, repent, and the script that is reading good news. It does not sound like good news being summoned to repent. And yet that is the line in verse 15 of chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. And as much as anything, tonight uh, this is about trying to bring those things together. How can what we say the gospel is, it just means the word's good news, how can that good news be allied to this sense that it calls for repentance, which always sounds like grim and bad news? Well, as always, context is everything. And uh, the context for the beginning of Mark's gospel are all the echoes that there are, of the Old Testament, particularly of the prophet Isaiah, uh, and particularly in that line in verse 15, repent and believe the good news. Now, there are lashings of Isaiah all over this text, Um, and I I decided I would show you them all um, uh, from the beginning of chapter one, but I'm going to do it um, at a breakneck pace. And what I suggest you do, can we have the first slide? Um, What I suggest you do Um, The little figures in brackets are the verses that there are in Mark's Gospel. Uh, The references are the uh, texts from Isaiah. Now, what I suggest you can do that, that's just to show that there's a lot of them, and there's another slide after this. Uh, But what I suggest you do is I'm just going to go through Mark's Gospel, these first verses, and I suggest you keep your eyes actually in the text of Mark, because it's Mark that matters most to us this evening. So, first of all, most obviously, verse 3 of Mark, chapter 1. Uh, Isaiah and verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Then Mark and uh, verse 4, uh, uh, Isaiah 59, the Redeemer will come to those who repent of their sins. Uh, Mark, verse 8, uh, Isaiah 61, we heard already, the Spirit Of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He'll baptize you with the Spirit, says John. Uh, Verse 9 of Mark, uh, chapter 9 of uh, Isaiah. In the future, God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Keep your eyes in verse 9, please. Don't bother looking at the script, because otherwise, you won't really believe that those verses are in Mark. In the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles along the Jordan. Verse 10, going on. Uh, Isaiah 64 says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And that's in the context of a judgment in Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens open and come down and judge the world. And interestingly, here in verse 10, we get exactly that kind of judgment. But the judgment is not negative, it's positive. With you, I am well pleased. There's a judgment possible in which God can be well pleased with a human being. We see it in verse 10. Then in verse 12. Um, surely they, this is the going, Jesus is sent off into the desert. Surely they are sons who will not be false to me. And the angel of his presence saved them. Uh, next slide, if you would. Uh, oh, sorry, yes, the, the angel of his presence saved them. Then verse 12. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, the is that right? No, sorry. Verse thirteen. By now, um, the desert and the parched land will be glad. We've got the desert there, and again in verse thirteen, there's a mistake on the slide. Um, uh, and again from Isaiah thirty-five, no lion will be there, nor any ferocious beast. Why on earth would it matter to Mark to record that Jesus was with the wild animals? Because it's a prophecy from Isaiah that the ferocity of the beasts will have gone away. There will be no lion, there will be no ferocious beasts in the coming kingdom of God. Then verse 14, um, uh, John is put in prison, uh, and there's an echo perhaps there of Isaiah 61 that uh, uh, God has uh, sent his servant to proclaim freedom for the captives. John's been put into prison by Herod, uh, and there's a, a sense of one kingdom versus another. Verses 14 and 15, really important text in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. um, If I hummed it, you would sing it along with me. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Um, Who proclaims, your God reigns. Uh, The time has come, says Jesus in verse uh, 15. He proclaims the good news of God in verse 14, and then says the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We'll come to that in a minute. Verse 15. uh, The time has come. Isaiah says, in its time, I will do this swiftly, bring the kingdom. And then again, verse uh, 15. To us, a child is born, a son is given. He will reign over David's kingdom forever. Well that was just a breakneck going through. What I want you to appreciate that of course it's not always oh there's a word there, Isaiah has the same word, therefore it's a quote. Uh, of course not. But the language of Mark 1 is steeped in, it's soaked in Isaiah. Especially from chapters well, chapters thirty-five and forty onwards. There's a new world coming with a new king and a new kingdom. And things are not just going to be all right, they're going to be magnificent. Not the magnificence of a palace, but a magnificence of a people who are repentant and at peace with their Lord. This business of being the king matters. Now, perhaps you were here uh, last week uh, when Nigel uh, spoke on what is the gospel. And he spoke in, um, it was very much listening to Nigel, at a game of two halves. First of all, he spoke about how he'd initially experienced uh, uh, God as uh, the forgiver of sins through the cross. And then later on, as uh, he'd grown in Christian faith, he came to see the importance of the coming kingdom. Well, both of those are, are vital. <clears throat> the cross stands as the good news that there is free pardon available for the thousand ways in which I fall short of God's goodness, in which I transgress his ways. Not, it's, it's not by my effort to win his favor. It's his delight to make me his child. That was the way in to the good news, mostly when people like the Jews of old and probably like most of the European populations through to the 1950s knew that they were sinners. And so the key question was how to deal with the sin I already know about. These days, of course, people do not know they are sinners, and so that way in may be less uh, uh, the first and foremost one we turn to. But then part two of what Nigel had to say was the kingdom, and the kingdom stands for the good news that Jesus preaches many times. He announces the forgiveness of sins, and he acts out the restoration of wholeness to the creation, where water can become wine, sickness can be healed, minds can be repaired, and joy can be recovered, and love can be restored. When in our own day, we seem now to know more about broken relationships and a broken world. Restoration and repair may offer for many an easier, more understandable way in. But both are going to be vital, and lots more besides. But Nigel uh, left me with a logical question, and it's this. What's the connection between those two halves? It can't just be that the cross is good news for some and the king is good news for others, what holds them together? And I think Isaiah has the answer. There are in the Old Testament 31 occurrences in the English translation that we have of the word saviour. Ten of them alone, a whole third, are in the one book of Isaiah, and most of them are after chapter 40. God will again be a saviour and a redeemer, And that language takes us back to the ancient language of kingship. Thank you, Thomas, you can kill that for the moment. If anyone wants it later, I've I've got copies. What did the first king, Saul, do? He saved the people in battle. What did King David do? First he saved the sheep by fighting off the lions and the bears that were attacking them. Then he went on to save the people by fighting off their enemies. The first duty of the sovereign in the Old Testament, is what we might now call the defense of the realm. We sang it at the first song, to be the defender of the weak. By personally fighting off the threats, the king guards and saves the people. So for the king to be the savior is entirely normal in the world of Isaiah. And that's what holds those two themes together that Nigel dealt with, the cross and the kingship. How is it that Jesus can be King, the mighty Lord, and also the Redeemer on the cross? It's because sin is the great and awful, terrible, dreadful threat against my well-being and yours. To live in a good world and to care nothing for its Creator to act as though I was the measure of all that is wise and good, to base the moral universe around what I think. That is a terrible betrayal of the rights of a creator God. It is sin, and it sets itself up in opposition to God as wiser than wisdom, better than the good, more loving than love himself. That's at the heart of it. That's before we even look at the consequences as they unroll of lives lost to greed and exploitation and selfishness and terror and abuse. And God's only going to have two real choices. Either he has to obliterate such opposition from the face of the earth, or he has to overcome it. And if he is king, saviour, then he's going to decide to rescue, to redeem. It's what King Saviours do. So Jesus comes as Lord and King with all the promises of Isaiah and defeats sin in his own body, paying the only price in love that can finally matter at the cost of his own self. And if this Jesus is risen from death, from death, there can be nothing over which he is not Lord. I, I, I decline to believe that it is possible to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, if you do not believe that he is risen from death. Then he's just a, <clears throat> another of the thousand wise teachers that there have been, except he was unwise, because he said he would rise from death, and then he didn't. And if there has been a conquering of death, then there is a new kingdom, it's a new world order. So let me just tell you my bit of the story, because one of the, bit, one of the um, requests I made of those doing this series was just tell us what, how the gospel came to you. Um, my, it was, oh, uh, yonks ago in the 70s sometime, uh, before some of you were born, quite a lot of you were born, um, and I, uh, I was at home, it was uh, Easter time, my parents were away, I was bored, and it was Sunday. You have no idea how boring a 1970s Sunday could be, unless you lived through them. Um, what uh, Douglas Adams called the long, dark tea time of the soul. Um, uh, and I think this was actually... No, I t- I must tell the truth. That, that Sunday came later. This was Good Friday. That was even worse. A Good Friday in the 1970s. Um, so I turned on the television. Um, I came from Chester. I was interested in drama, and so I watched on BBC Two the first production uh, of the Chester mystery plays um, that went on for four hours. It was the... Those of a technical mindset, it was the first use in British television of colour separation overlay. Don't know why I remember that. I'm sure I should remember something much more important, but I do remember that. Anyway, I, we got to the end of this sort of medieval text that had gone on for four hours, and I knew the text. I'd been in the Chester Mystery Plays. But in all my stuff at school, I'd never seen the internal coherence of this story. That a man who taught that kind of thing probably would rise. And a man who rose would be the kind of man who taught those sorts of things. And I saw the internal coherence of it for the first time. And I thought, oh, okay, well, Jesus is alive then, fine. Um, It didn't occur to me to tell anyone. Um, uh, I I was one of those people who came to uh, Christ via television. Um, There was no one else around, so I just prayed to the ceiling for the next sort of six months. Uh, It was the kind of family where no one went to church, and I wasn't about to start going to church, um, because that would have been weird. So I thought, but I'm going up to university. There will be people there, and I can make a life for myself. I might even go to church. Went up to university. um, Found uh, there that there were these people called Christians. I'd never met people like that. The only Christians I'd ever met before were wet. Um, But these people had some um, fizz to them. Um, uh, And a couple of them took me off to church uh, a few weeks into university life. And uh, uh, a a Scottish professor of psychology, it was, uh, who was preaching that day. And he explained that there was this thing, the cross, and it was a bit important. Uh, and I could have my sins forgiven. Now, the importance of that story for me is that I came to the whole ev- event of Scripture, of the New Testament, by way of the resurrection first and the cross later. I, 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 in, I knew in my spirit that this event of the resurrection was coherent with the life that had been lived. But then later, I I had the picture opened up for me and explained, and I was delighted to discover that uh, there was a way uh, to live with God, because my sins uh, were forgiven. I, therefore, go into the rest of my Christian life for the, the next sort of 40 years or so. Prioritizing, in a sense, the resurrection bit of the story. And I I think even in Mark, we're beginning to get that. The new king is here. Can you imagine Jesus saying, Repent and believe the good news? The kingdom has drawn near, expecting of himself that he would die and be no more, and that would be it. I don't actually believe at this point that Jesus knew every last detail of what would happen. I simply believe. He had confidence that God would make it okay, somehow. And what you get even at the beginning of the Gospels is this tremendous resurrection confidence. But of course, there is only any sense in resurrection if the one who is resurrected has made a major defeat of death, the death that, according to the Scriptures is itself connected to our sinfulness. There is a new world order in these verses. There is a king saviour. But there's more. See, Mark couldn't ignore Rome. John had been put in prison there, verse 14. It was Herod who was compromised in religion, who was working with the Romans, who had arranged for John to go into prison. The world of politics is intruding, even at verse 14 of chapter 1. Mark couldn't ignore Rome and Herod, and we cannot ignore Paris tonight. There are those who seek to terrify us into a polarized world in which there will be only the caliphate of the true believers, surrounded by enemies to hate and conquer. And because we know of that attack and that world and that thought frame, we may thereby ignore that there's no particular logic to the world of nation-states which they seek to overthrow. Because of Jesus, you and I have more in common with the Eritrean believer worshipping in that pathetic tent chapel outside Calais than we do with our physical English neighbours. We shall spend eternity with the one, and not, so far, with the other. What Jesus is about in announcing good news in Mark's Gospel is what these days we might call regime change. Under what regime will we live? The caliphate is right in polarizing the world. But the follower of Jesus looks to love the other side and not to hate, and that's where the difference lies. And loving the other, old, tired kingdom may cost us everything as it has cost so many. Again, next week, in the morning, we shall have a baptism. That if it is known about and news gets home it will constitute a death sentence in itself. The ancient church knew that Jesus is Lord. That phrase, Jesus is Lord, is the first creed of the church. Or it's possible to translate it a different way. Not Jesus is Lord, but the Lord is Jesus. Because everyone knew in those days who the Lord was. The Lord was the Roman emperor. So what the Christians were doing was choosing to blow a great loud raspberry to the ruling authorities as they recited their first creed. Regime change, when the old regime doesn't recognize it, might cost you everything, and Mark knew that. The good news for Mark's world, therefore, is that everything that stands between the people and their God is now being put to rights. Jesus is King Saviour, defending the people, and also King Emperor, Lord of all there is. And I want to suggest something radical for our world, which includes us. We'll see much more next week when we look at what we do with the good news. But I suggest that what our world needs, yours and mine, in this 21st century is a people who will listen to the world around them. Listen to friends and neighbours and consider what the bad news is that others live with. Who is the equivalent of the Roman emperor who holds false authority these days? Well, the old monks took vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, which tells us that the usual list of false authority is money, sex and power. And we can, I suppose, finesse that list and add a fourth, doing good, but on my terms. If we take the picture seriously from Isaiah 52 and the way it's used in verse 15 here, the good news of the king who has won the great victory. If we take that picture seriously the herald bounding over the mountains, then we can be as creative as we wish with the good news. Confident that there is good news for the bad news of every person on the planet. What is the good news? I dare to say that it is whatever you want it to be, provided you tell the story of Jesus Christ, born, living, died, resurrected, ascended, sending his spirit and returning along the way because somewhere in that story you will connect with the bad news of someone else you care about. And it's not always awful bad news either. Sometimes it's simply the bored news of comfortable lives that are going nowhere. But I don't want to finish without pressing home to ourselves, to you, and to me, what the good news may be for us. Under what regime will you live? The claim of Jesus here, bracketing good news and repentance in the same sentence, like that man in the imaginary uh, Carrow Road uh, concourse, is that it must be good news if we bow the knee to the true king who has won a victory for rightness, justice, goodness, and love. And if we then confess that we have up to now followed the wrong king in following our own ways, even when we thought we were doing good as we saw it, then what's going on is we are aligning ourselves with the good news by rejecting the old news with which we have lived. Under what regime will you live? I cannot promise tonight that if you repent and believe the good news tonight, you will wake up tomorrow and the sun will be warm and the birds will be singing, and everyone you pass will have a happy face. There's much to do and much to change within ourselves, and the fight is draining and it lasts till our dying breath because most of the fight is within me and you and each one of us. But what banner will we fight under, the Lord Jesus or the lords of this world? What army will we belong to, the Lord Jesus's, or the hosts of commerce, lewdness and self-centeredness, even the sort that's disguised as care for others? Money, sex and power are still pretty powerful, and kindness on my terms is powerful too. It may be a night to switch sides. It's important to say to repent is not to indulge in a lashing of repentance as grim, sour, and ugly self-loathing. It is simply a more joyful recognition that there is one king, and he has come. He's put things to rights. He will return to make plain in sight what is now a decision of faith, and he issues a summons as much tonight as he did then. That's what it is to follow Jesus, is to issue the same summons. Repent and believe the good news. It is good news. The world will have its kings and lords, and so will I and you. But the question is, which regime, will I, uh, which regime wins? And I stand not to preach myself, but Jesus is Lord. What other Lord would we want? So, come to communion, bow the knee as repenting, extend the hand to be filled, because this, even here tonight, is the banquet of the coming kingdom. And so, repent and believe the good news. I'm going to keep uh, silence now as we uh, finish. Um, and I suppose I, I just ask you, I, I keep going on about this business of uh, that, that fourth sense of doing good on our own terms, because I don't suppose that we have many money launderers, uh, pimps, or similar among us this evening. But we probably have those among us, and maybe we ourselves, who kind of want to do good, but on our own terms. To do good as though there were no God and no Savior. And so I do just invite you to ask what regime you currently operate under, to face the good news, to face the news that comes with Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. There's a different regime, a different kingdom. And to decide which one you want to be part of. And then I'll pray. So uh, a moment or two of silence. Lord God, it is our nature to want to see things in grey on a spectrum, a bit more and a bit less. We resent, in part of ourselves, being asked to see things in these polar terms. But we know that for one person next week, the decision to be baptised and to live under the regime of the Lord Jesus is a death sentence. There are those in our world who understand very precisely what a decision for Jesus Christ may mean. Give us grace who have made that decision either tonight or in years long, long past to live wholeheartedly and fully in the confidence of that new kingdom until the day dawns when the king of all makes himself known